The sun is setting on another day in Tokyo. It's time to kick back with a Suntory highball and a plate of takoyaki. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. So, wait, where are we right now? And what day is it? I'm feeling a bit discombobulated. <laughs> That's right. The uh, culture slash temperature slash time changes this week have been pretty intense. From a cool winter's day in Cape Town to the sweltering jungle of Singapore, and then onto the megalopolis of Tokyo, we have seen and done many things. And we've got the sore feet to prove it. Our travel started with a 13-hour flight from Cape Town to Singapore, which we were lucky to do in business class style. Many thanks, by the way, to our friend Daniel Meyerson for showing us how to play the credit card game. Yeah, this flight only cost us 40,000 credit card points per person. An economy flight from the U.S. to Europe usually costs 30,000, so this was a real steal. And it was definitely really nice. The seats were huge, and both of us could lay flat and fully stretch out. And the food was definitely a step up from economy. I mean, I probably drank an entire bottle of champagne all by myself over the course of the flight. You know, they just kept giving me little top-offs. Yeah, Singapore Air is famous for their high level of service, and we were really impressed by it, both on this flight and our flight from Singapore to Tokyo. Everything just is generally on a higher level than in the U.S. carriers, all the way down to the flight attendants' uniforms and the toiletries stocked in the bathrooms. That all being said, neither one of us was able to get much sleep. The time differential was rough, and it was just a kind of bumpy flight. And no amount of business class can take that away. Right. So it was fun to fly in style, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for more deals like this. We actually have business class tickets from Tokyo to Santiago. But it's also good to realize that everyone on the plane gets to the same place at the same time. Although one convenient aspect of flying business class was that it prepared us well for Singapore, which felt like a business class city. For sure. Singapore captures business class style. Everyone speaks business English, and everything was immaculately clean and efficient. I mean, I'm sure that poverty exists in Singapore, but we certainly didn't see it. It was a real change from South Africa, where even in ritzy places like Central Cape Town, the presence of poverty is still very much part of the everyday lived experience on the street. Though in terms of pricing, it was kind of a shock to go from Cape Town, where you could find a gin and tonic at a pretty hip bar for $2.00. To Singapore, where getting a cocktail out would run you at least 15. Yeah, so we had a very dry visit to Singapore. But when it lacked in inexpensive booze, it more than made up for in inexpensive food. Yeah, so part of the reason, or really the main reason, we did this three-day layover in Singapore was that it's a famously good food city. And you can really see this in what are called the hawker centers, which are kind of food courts around the city. And they're unlike anything in the US, or honestly anywhere else I've seen before. So all the way back to the early days of British colonial rule, many Singaporeans, particularly new immigrants from around Asia, would make a living, as immigrants often do, by hawking food on the street side. And as Singapore developed in the 50s and 60s, the government did this really smart thing and built these hawker centers to get these people off the street and making it easier to regulate things like health and safety standards. So unlike the states where you have either mall-type food courts full of chains or the newer food halls full of hipster kombucha stalls started in 2016 by somebody who watched a few YouTube videos, 
Here in Singapore, you have this amazing profusion of tiny stands that are clustered together, and in large part, each one has been run by a single family for over 60 years. And they're all crammed together, usually in an open-air space with a single roof, covering a large communal seating area with low stools and tables. Like everything in Singapore, the hawker centers are super clean and orderly, even though the overall impression is quite overwhelming at first. There are a ton of people there, because these food courts are clearly where everyone in Singapore, rich or poor, goes to lunch. And every stall is selling a different Asian cuisine. And many just sell one particular dish. Which is so awesome. I mean, you know that a place that has sold only a single thing for decades must be pretty damn exceptional at that one thing. And everything was super affordable, very no-nonsense, it was very functional and efficient, but at the same time, deeply expressive. You know, each stall was unique and full of character. And though I am reluctant to throw this term around, I have to say that the hawker centers and the food sold there felt quite authentic. I think that's a fair thing to say. They also just made it easy to eat while in Singapore. I think that's a fair thing to say. They also just made it really easy to eat while in Singapore. Wherever we were, we knew we could just look for the nearest hawker center and know that there would be a ton of reasonably priced fast options. Unfortunately, hawker centers today are facing the omnipresent threat of rising rent and are being replaced with quote-unquote nicer, more U.S.-style food halls. I certainly hope that Singapore will protect this cultural asset. No, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I've definitely been missing the Hawker Center since we arrived in Japan. It's been much tougher to figure out where to eat here, in large part because many of the restaurants are hidden away with no advertisement or menu or anything, just some kanji over a doorway. So who knows what you're getting yourself into? You know, that little stand by the metro station could easily turn out to be a $400 omakase joint, or a place that only serves horse sashimi. I mean, all of the food has been good here, and we'll talk more about that in later episodes for sure. But it has not been the easiest thing to navigate. The hawker centers in Singapore managed to feel super foreign and different, but still absolutely manageable and affordable. Since we went to Singapore primarily for the food, I frankly had no idea what to expect when it came to the architecture. I mostly associate Singapore with big, multinational corporations and tall glass skyscrapers. And there were certainly plenty of those. But I wasn't prepared for how much of the older architectural landscape was still part of the urban fabric. Much of central Singapore was planned under British colonial rule, and as such, follows the same set of general architectural guidelines. Right. At a certain point, you know, hawkers are really creating significant street clutter, blocking major thoroughfares. So part of the British colonial plan was really meant to clean up the urban condition by creating more uniform architecture and regulating how the shared streetscape was used. Now, this is kind of a precursor to the modern regulations that created the centralized hawker markets of today. Sir Stamford Raffles, who is credited with founding modern Singapore, came up with this plan to create these five-foot frontages between storefronts and the streets. And these five-foot arcades are now really ubiquitous in Singapore. They feel quite distinctive. And they are everywhere in the central city, whether you're in Chinatown or Little India or in the business district. And most of the colonial building stock feels very similar. It's mostly two- and three-story buildings that have the same kind of classical elements combined with more regional variations. All of that old colonial building also feels very human-scale. It's made for really interesting exploring, whether we were walking past dozens of stores selling gold jewelry or hip bars and CrossFit studios. But what was really interesting was how those older, lower buildings coexist with all the ultra-modern skyscrapers that have been built over just the past couple of decades. Right. 
Everything in Singapore felt either 19th century or 1990s and later. This in part has to do with the history of the country. It was occupied by the Japanese during World War II, which really set the island back in a lot of ways. And once the British resumed control after the war, Singapore's residents were facing massive shortages of housing and food. After Singapore voted for independence in 1965, the new nation embarked on a very conscious and rigorous modernization campaign. And it's really only been in the past few decades that the country has built up into that modern metropolis that we know today. Yeah, the Singapore of movies like Crazy Rich Asians is still relatively new. It's been really interesting to compare the architectural landscape of Singapore, which has this strong 19th century slash 21st century duality in the architecture, to Tokyo, which feels like a lot of the rebuilding started right after World War II. So there's lots of brutalist and high-tech architecture. The feeling of the 1960s and 1970s is very strong in the part of Tokyo where we were staying. And the hostel we stayed in used to be a geisha house, though. So it's been fun to discover little pockets of older architecture that survived the bombing in World War II. But getting back to Singapore now, one thing that impressed us was how much the city has really done to preserve and commemorate its built heritage. Practically every historic building had some kind of very informational plaque on it. Yes, which often included interesting historical photographs as well. Of course, other cities do this too. But in Singapore, they really seem to be everywhere. And not just on buildings that were particularly beautiful or especially old. You know, there were explanatory signs even for hawker centers that had been erected as recently as the 70s. The other nice feature was that these signs were often linked together into larger historical trails. For instance, the former Ford factory we visited was part of a World War II heritage trail. Thanks, by the way, John, for finding out about that museum. Yeah, no problem. What did you think of that museum, by the way? It was a really interesting example of industrial adaptive reuse. Certainly a fascinating case study compared to some of the reused industrial buildings we saw in South Africa. This old Ford factory has been converted into a museum that is now part of the National Archives complex. The permanent exhibition there deals with the period of Japanese occupation during World War II. The factory was actually the site where the British signed the terms of the surrender. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. They actually had the room where that surrender was signed preserved, even with the original flags and furniture that you could see in the museum. It was interesting, though, because besides that one room, no trace of the original interior condition was apparent at all. The interior of the museum really obliterated the former purpose of the building. That said, the quality of the exhibition was extremely high and very immersive. Absolutely. There was some really well-crafted and thoughtful museum storytelling, richly layered and incorporating lots of digital interactives alongside original artifacts. But just compared to, say, Zeitz Mocha, where the real architectural core of the building was rooted in the nature of the reused space, this was just a really different approach. And as a side note, I wrote a blog post this week that deals with these issues of heritage interpretation in Singapore. And one thing I've noticed is that in South Africa, you had to work to find interpretation of the built environment. And it's been a lot easier in Singapore and Tokyo to find public history addressing architecture directly. Very much so. At a lot of the sites we saw in South Africa, the architectural interpretation certainly seemed incidental to the more general history of a place. But especially since arriving in Japan, we've really been immersed in architectural history proper. Yep. 
We left Singapore on Thursday night and arrived in Tokyo early Friday morning, and since then, we've basically been hitting an architectural museum or architecture exhibition every day. Honestly, this has felt like a playground for Sarah. And of course, I've been enjoying it too. Yeah, so on Friday we checked out a temporary exhibition on the history of Japanese architecture at the Mori Art Museum. On Saturday, we went to the Edo Tokyo Museum in downtown Tokyo. And on Sunday, we went to the Edo Tokyo Open Air Architectural Museum, which is a little bit out sort of toward the west. Today, we checked out the Museum 2121 design site for an exhibition called Audio Architecture. So John, what's been the favorite thing of those that you've seen so far? Well, I did really enjoy the Mori Art Museum. It was a pretty nice introduction to Japanese architecture overall. The arrangement was nicely thematic and covered a lot of ground. And, and I liked that it was really oriented towards Japanese audiences as much as foreign tourists. To me, it was a fascinating formulation for an exhibit. Because in today's world, it doesn't seem like a given that there exists something called quote-unquote Japanese architecture, or that that's really even a productive thing to talk about. You know, the practice of architecture has become increasingly globalized in recent years. And, as we saw at the two Edo Tokyo museums, westernization really began quite early, basically with the start of the Meiji Restoration. But this exhibition at the Mori Art Museum seemed to really be arguing that yes, there is such a thing as Japanese architecture, and it tends to have certain formal characteristics. And as someone who doesn't know as much about architecture, they were things that I guess I would have expected based on what I do know about Japanese building already. You know, things like use of wood, focus on craftsmanship, and harmony with nature. It was funny to me, actually, that they showed the MoMA exhibition catalog for the show of Japanese architecture held there back in 1955, when some of the points this exhibit was making really weren't that different, just kind of updated to include more recent architecture. Yeah, but I think there was a reflexive aspect to the exhibition as well. You know, the curators seemed very cognizant of the fact that these particular concepts and characteristics were things that outsiders have also seized on over the years. Right, but just redisplaying those things seems in some ways to just perpetuate the same nationalist myth, don't you think? Uh, I don't know. For me, it really was a useful introduction to how to look at Japanese architecture. I now know, for example, to look for deep eaves that protect the building fronts from severe sun or rain or snow, and that interiors and exteriors here tend to be a lot less definite. You know, there's a great deal more flow between inside and outside. I can definitely see that, and it was a well-wrought exhibition for sure. But all of those tiny, finely crafted models seem to me to fetishize the tradition rather than to provoke new ways of seeing. There were a couple of displays, both from historical architects and contemporary firms, that seemed to challenge some of the main claims being made though. And to me, it would have been interesting to see more active engagement with those projects that sort of trouble or problematize the myth of Japanese architecture. Yeah, certainly in terms of actually introducing some of the more complex interactions between Japanese and Western architecture, the open-air Edo Tokyo Museum was definitely the most effective. Just being able to actually enter the buildings and examine the details up close brought history to life. I was just blown away by the sheer diversity of buildings at the Edo Tokyo Open Air Museum. I kind of felt like I left with a much better understanding of how different kinds of Japanese architecture developed over the last 150 years. 
For instance, I didn't realize how much commercial architecture changed after the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. There was this whole new style called signboard architecture, or in Japanese, kanban kinchiku, invented that was designed to make retail stores stand out more on the street. It combined traditional Japanese building techniques with Western styles, using materials in kind of interesting and provocative ways. Many of these signboard buildings have a distinctive copper sheeting on the exterior, which oxidizes to this richly textured, amazing green. They were striking and certainly stood out. It was also interesting to see the ways in which westernizing influences were brought into Japanese homes over time. You know, there wasn't just one approach. Japanese architects were adapting rapidly to new influences and changing consumer demands. The inclusion of Western-style bathrooms, for instance, in houses that otherwise felt pretty traditional. Or using concrete alongside traditional tatami mats and paper screens. That museum was definitely a good reminder of how much you can learn from actually being inside a building. There are all of these non-visual parts of the experience that are really hard to replace or to recreate. In many of the more traditional houses, the cross-draft created by having sequences of windows open felt so refreshing and brought in the sense of the trees outside. And walking on tatami mats and bare feet was such a treat. It was so comfortable. Compared, by contrast, to some of the 1920s Western-style houses we saw, which could feel extremely stuffy. It was also interesting after South Africa, where we saw a lot of heavily furnished and decorated period rooms, to experience completely unfurnished Western-style rooms in some of the houses at this museum. Totally. Late Victorian architecture was designed to be furnished, and heavily furnished. Seeing it without any decorations or furniture was actually really weird and just further underlined the very different approach to interiors in Japanese building. Yeah, some of them felt so good empty that it almost would feel like a shame to put any furniture in these rooms. And I also really enjoyed all of the interactive and performative elements at the museum. You know, there were people doing traditional crafts like silk weaving and chair caning, and there was even a modern photo studio where you could have your picture taken with a completely daylit room. And there were very comprehensive free brochures in English for each of the different buildings. Yeah, adjusting to a cultural environment where English is not widely spoken has been a challenge. We were definitely spoiled in South Africa in that regard. But actually, beyond the language barrier, in some ways, Japan has been easier to cope with, culturally anyway, than South Africa was. Yeah, despite not really knowing what we were getting into when we got to South Africa, you know, the narrative immediately became clear. There's this huge, intense national conversation about race and inequality that pervades almost everything. And it's impossible not to feel like you, yourself, by your very act of being there, are now part of the conversation. It just felt like there was this rushing river, and you had to be navigating it all the time, you know, figuring out the vibe, understanding the context, which was super rewarding, and we're both grateful for that opportunity to engage and learn. But it was exhausting, despite talking about it a lot, both just to each other and, of course, on this podcast and in our blogs, I don't think either of us appreciated. I don't want to say the toll that it was taking on us, but certainly the amount of headspace it was taking up. After leaving, though, we've both felt a certain kind of relaxation. There is kind of a bliss to not having any idea what's going on around you, and most importantly, not really needing to know what's going on around you. You can just revel in the newness and the strangeness of it all without worrying if you're in a space you really shouldn't be or doing something you really shouldn't do. 
I don't know. I mean, I'm still stressing out a lot about the etiquette rules here in Japan. Oh, for sure. But I feel like that's a different kind of stress. You know, it feels like less is at stake here. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess as long as we are kind and quiet and say arigato gozaimasu a lot, then we aren't going to really offend anyone too seriously. Yeah, and it's not even so much a safety thing, although it is nice to not have to worry at all about that anymore. I think that after South Africa, it's just nice to feel like we can be anonymous. I mean, obviously we stand out, but to the people here, it doesn't really matter that we're here, whereas our presence was so much more noticed in South Africa. Although I can imagine this feeling a bit alienating after a while. I'm glad we have each other to talk to at least. And our podcast listeners. But I can already see how the international hostels here play an important role for tourists. And there have been a surprising number of single travelers meeting each other and talking in the common rooms here. And while it may take less of an emotional toll, traveling here has already presented its own difficulties and unexpected rewards. For sure. You know, just the logistical challenge is much higher here. You know, we were so spoiled in South Africa being able to take an Uber anywhere we wanted. One benefit of that difficulty, though, is that here we just have to let go a bit. There's no way we can plan things perfectly since we understand so little. So having no idea what we're eating at a restaurant or getting on a bus and hoping it's the right one, it's good for us to give up some of that control and just go with the flow. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a philosophy of letting go of control and like abandoning expectations and just letting yourself be. Matt, that that could be useful while we're here. Hmm. Yeah. No, we should uh we should keep an eye out for that. Anyway, that's all for us this week, folks. And by the time you hear this, we'll be in Sapporo, which was hit by a massive 6.7 magnitude earthquake only last week. Originally, we weren't sure if we were still going to go, but our Airbnb host told us that her apartment is undamaged and the electricity is back and the trains are running, so we figured we'd give it a shot. We'll be up on the northern island of Hokkaido for a week, spending a few nights here in Sapporo and then on down to Hakodate. Both cities have a bunch of Brooks-related sites for me, and it'll be nice to be in cooler climes after it's been hovering around 90 degrees Fahrenheit in Tokyo for the past week. Our theme music, as always, by Mark Barrett. Until next week, sayonara and happy trails, listeners. Mm-hmm.